Love Talk Radio.
God, we're grateful because if it had not been for you, we would not be here. We opened our eyes this morning, God, because you gave us the strength to open our eyes. We were able to rise because you gave us strength and our limbs and the facilities of our body. We were able to get here, God, because you blessed us and brought us the way of safety and did not allow harm to come to us, Lord. We're grateful to again come into your presence because we know where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And as we come before you today, have your way, Lord. Let flesh be crucified that you might be glorified, that your people might be edified in the name of Jesus. For God in you is life. And that's what we seek, God, life, eternal life, God. And we pray, O oh God, today that you will touch every person that have come seeking you, Lord. Bind the hand of the devil, God. Rebuke the hand of the enemy, Lord. God, let your anointing that resonates in this place even now. God, let there be an outpouring on your people. We need you, God, to take us to another level in you, Lord. God, we're faced with demonic forces, God. Evil spirits have come up against us, Lord, and we need to be fortified with your power. God, we can't make it on our own strength, God. We don't have enough to stand on, Lord. But we know, God, that your joy is our strength. Fill us up on today in the name of Jesus. Somebody have come this morning burdened down, God, with the issues of life, God. Somebody, God, is in the battle of their life. Somebody's, God, fighting in their mind and in their spirit, Lord. Where the devil have come in to war against them, Lord. But we we thank you, God, because we know greater are you that's within us uh, than he that is within this world, God. Uh, we know, God, that you are a deliverer, Lord, uh, that you're the same yesterday, today, and forever. Uh, and you're no short of your promise, Lord, uh, and you're able to deliver us, Lord. Uh, touch us on today, Lord. Uh, we need you like never before. Uh, fill us up with the Holy Ghost, God, uh, and give us a refilling, Lord, uh, that when we leave here today, Lord, huh? we can leave with your anointing, Lord, huh? that as we meet men and women, boys and girls, huh? they might be converted to know who you are, Lord. Huh? In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Huh? We thank you because you are a healer. Huh? You're the God that healeth thee, huh? and healing is in your wings, huh? and you're able to touch our feeble bodies. Huh? You're able to save our troubled souls, huh? and in the name of Jesus, huh? bind every demon, Lord, huh? every demonic force, Lord. Huh? God, that comes to keep us in the same place, Lord. We're willing, God, to surrender and say yes to your will, Lord. We're willing to turn our lives, God, over into your hands, Lord, because we come to the place, God, where we realize like never before, we need you, Jesus. More than anything we know, we need you, Jesus. While men are trying to find, God, solutions to this chaotic world, God, we're looking to you. 
you, Lord, because we know for every right desire, there is an answer. And Jesus, you that answer. There's no need for us, God, to turn hither or thither, Lord. We need but to look for you, Lord, because you're the answer, God, for our trouble lies, Lord. Touch on the day, God. Break every yoke, oh God. Save on the day, God. Deliver on the day, God. Jesus, we need you, Lord. We need you, Jesus. We need you, Jesus. We're crying out to you, Lord. We know that you're able to save our souls. We know that you're able, God, to heal our bodies, Jesus. We know that you're able, God, to turn our situations around. Jesus, no other help we know. No other help we know. No other help we know, God. You're able, Jesus, to deliver our children. You're able, Jesus, to save the unsaved husband. You're able, Jesus, to heal the cancer patient. Nothing too hard for you, Jesus. No other God we know. We know that you're able, Jesus. We know that you're able, Jesus. We say yes to your will, God. Yes to your way, Lord. Have your way, Jesus. And we'll thank you for it. And we'll give your name the praise. And we'll bless you, Lord. Yes, we thank you, Lord. And we bless your holy name. Come on, open your mouth and give the Lord some praise.
This is the kind of radio you need. Yes, Jesus is a morning radio. Old radio for real people. Hallelujah. Excuse me. Hallelujah, hallelujah. We thank God this morning for another Thursday morning. And uh, we thank him for all he has done for us. Intercessors, I'm going to ask you to touch and agree with me this morning for Sister Irene. And uh, we're praying uh, for her healing. We're praying that God would move in a mighty way. And we bind up the enemy coming against her today in the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. Because we know God is able. We know that there's nothing too hard for him. Oh, yeah. We've seen him move before in our lives at different times. He's moving right now. He's moving today because we're alive. We're among the living and not the, uh, uh, not dead. We're alive and well because of him. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus. Father, we thank you that we can come boldly before your throne of grace at any time for any reason. We don't even have to have a reason to come and talk to you other than we just want to feel close to you. Hallelujah. We want to hear from you. Lord, we want to tell you what's going on. Not that you don't know, but we have not because we ask not. And this morning we bring Irene before your father. You know all about her. You made us. God, and you made her for your pleasure. We ask this morning that you would touch her mind, touch her heart, touch her body today. Lord, touch her spiritually and bless her today in healing with the, in the name of Jesus. You know what's going on with the God. You made that body. You know all about it. Do it for her today. Move every doubt, every concern, every worry. God, move it today in the name of Jesus. And remind her she can look to the hills from which cometh her help. All of her help comes from the Lord, you, almighty God, who have all power. You made the heavens and the earth. So we ask this morning that, Lord, you would visit her and that you would share with her and that, God, you would lift her up today. Strengthen her body, O oh God, in the name of Jesus. Bless her family. Bless her friends, Father. In Jesus' name, we're asking all of this this morning. On the behalf of Irene, Lord, you know her. Hallelujah. Moved by your spirit. And, Father, we touch and agree and bind up every evil and hindering and negative spirit that's coming her way today. We cast it to the pits of hell, never to return. And, Father, we ask that you would rebuke the devourer for Irene's sake this day. In the name of Jesus, no weapon formed against us shall prosper. She's more than a comfort through you, Christ Jesus, that loves her. Today, O oh God, move today in our time, 2023, January 26th. We ask this again in your son Jesus' name. Amen and hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. We thank you. We thank you. Thank you for your healing power this morning. Thank you that there's nothing too hard for you to do. Oh, we bless the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Amen. 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 And hallelujah unto his majesty. We thank God this morning that we can come 
to him at any time for any reason. Uh, yeah. Today, our topic um, is going to be the blood of Jesus, the power of the blood of Jesus, Bishop G.E. Patterson. And uh, that's going to be our topic for today. He's going to be our speaker. And so we are moving on this morning in Jesus' name. I have a few other little clips I want you to hear. And so we're going to be working on those. I don't know what happened over here, Brother Louis, but let's see. Okay, I think Louis went away. He must have got out of there, but he, he'll, he'll be coming back, I'm sure. Yeah. So listen, we want to go to this one uh, first, and then I have another clip, and uh, I believe we'll bring Bishop Patterson in afterwards. I happened to go to a church service, and on a Sunday I was sitting in the back, and I'll never forget it. There's this pastor, his name is Joey, and uh, he was preaching out of Psalms chapter 1. And if you read Psalm chapter 1, it, uh, it says this, and it goes, Oh, the joy of those who are righteous. Oh, the joy of those who are well, the Lord's pretty much. And he was preaching on it, and it says, But the wicked, the wicked, they hang out with other wicked people. They sit with them. They stand. They talk. And then he was talking about how, aren't you missing your father? And I just remember as Pastor Joey, as he was praying, I was sitting in the back. And the best way that I could describe it is I just started missing God. I really just started to miss him. And then the pastor comes and he makes a beeline to me. And he grabs me and he goes, RJ, how are you doing? And I was like, oh, it's going good. Fire. I'm totally lying. He's all, how are you doing? And I was like, I'm, I'm good. You know, I'm good. Fire. And then he asked me a third time and he said, RJ, how are you doing? And then I just broke down. When I was about one years old, my mom and dad, um, they were actually about to get a divorce. Uh, my dad, he was raised in church, but during the season in his life, he, he would even tell you that he was lukewarm. Um, and him and my mom, my mom was not raised in church, so they ended up getting married. They had me, and already at, uh, when I was about one years old, they wanted to get a divorce, and they were going to call it quits. And right around this time, my dad's youth pastor and his wife heard about how they were going to get a divorce. And so this youth pastor drives over to my parents' house, their one-bedroom apartment, knocks on the door. And my dad answers the door, and he, he comes in, and, and he said, hey, I heard you guys are going to get a divorce. My dad's like, yeah. And, and the pastor goes, well, where's the divorce papers? And he had matches. And uh, he said, you know what? You're not going to call it quits. We're going to light these divorce papers on, on fire because I believe Roy, uh, my dad, he said, I believe Roy, God still has a plan for you and for Kelly and also not only you but your son right here. And uh, God's not done with you. I'm so thankful because my parents, they, they listen to that pastor. I'm thankful for that pastor and his wife. And now to this day, my mom and dad have been serving Jesus for 32 years. They're children's pastors, reaching hundreds of kids every single week. My dad uh, runs paintball camps, and he's an amazing man of God. And now I'm the oldest of five. My brother Tyler, uh, Ashlyn, Madison, John, they wouldn't have even been born. And so I'm so thankful. But yeah, that's, that's the household that I was, uh, I was raised in. All I knew was Jesus. Um, we went to church every single week, uh, Sundays, Wednesdays. I went to church camps. Um, I watched Veggie Tales. If you're if you're a church kid, you know about Veggie Tales, Bible Man, Superbook. I I like Superbook before Superbook was even cool, right? And uh, and Pharaoh Pharaoh. So so that was me. And all I knew was Jesus. Uh, a lot of people 
talk about how maybe when they uh, they were raised in church that that they just kind of went because their parents made them. But but it was actually the opposite for me. Like I remember being four years old in my earliest memory of Jesus actually asking my mom. We were at my grand my grandpa's house and asked my mom, Mom, I, I want to give my life to Jesus. And it wasn't something that she was saying or anything. I just I, I just had it in my heart. And my mom was like, here, Grandpa's okay. And so she took me into the bathroom. That was the only private place. And I remember kneeling down and my mom praying and me asking Jesus to come into my life as a kid. As a kid, I was also on a worship team, and, and I was uh, given a, a role of like leadership, even in, even in kids' church. And I'd be able to pray for people, and sometimes I'd be able to speak. And I was on this worship team to where we would uh, travel up and down California, speaking at camps and worshiping at camps. And I remember when I was about 12 years old being at one of these camps. And this, I'll, I'll never forget this. Um, I was at a camp. It was in Santa Cruz, California, the, the mountains of Santa Cruz, California. And the pastor was preaching, and uh, it was it was a night that was just powerful. I don't know if you've ever sensed like the weighty presence of God in the service, but it was so powerful to where um, at the altar call, kids were crying, kids were manifesting, I believe kids were demons were were getting cast out. It was just it was wild at a kids camp, and it was one of those moments when God's presence was so thick to where it was almost kind of scary. And I remember the the pastor got on the mic. His name was Jason, and over the mic he calls and he said, "RJ, where?" Where's RJ? Someone, someone get me RJ. I need him. And um, he didn't know this, but at the time, uh, I was actually all the way hiding in the back of the of the um, auditorium is at a summer camp. It was at night, and I made sure I looked around. No one saw me, and I was underneath a pew. And at that same moment, I was calling out to God, and I felt like he was calling me into full-time ministry when I was about 12. And um, I was having this moment, and I was like, God, I want to be a pastor. I want to tell people about you. I, I really felt like he was calling me. Well, right as I got that out of my mouth, right, or even as I was just uttering it, that's when Pastor Jason was saying, hey, where's RJ? I need him. And so me being on the worship team and going to camps, you know, going up and down and kind of serving, even as a kid, uh, I thought that he wanted, like, water or something. I thought he was up there praying for kids at the altar. And so I got up, and I ran up to the front. And I was like, yeah, what do you need? And he grabbed me by my head. And he said, God told me to pray for you right now and that he's um, calling you. And, um, and so that is when I was 12 years old, I always knew and I was walking with the Lord and I had this sweet communion with Jesus. It wasn't fake, right? And um, I think that's why it made it uh, so much harder when I backslid or when I, uh, when I walked away from him. So 12 years old, I'm solid. I'm like, this is why I'm here. I know this is my calling. And God set me apart. He marked me on that day. Um, then junior high was good. High school, I'm serving the Lord, still ministering. Me and my buddies, we go to movies sometimes. And uh, I would, even after the movies, we'd try to witness the people. And I do like this whole way of the master thing. I don't know if you know what that is. but And, uh, and God was blessing it. I would see people cry. And I'd tell them about Jesus. And God was using me. But then I went to, it was actually, it's ironic, a Christian high school. The devil's after Christians, right? And then my freshman year, I was solid with Jesus. But right about my sophomore year and my junior year, things started to change. I was playing football, and I was hanging out with this crowd that um, that I usually wouldn't hang out with. And I actually, it doesn't look like it now, but I, I started to get good at football. I started to get noticed. I was fast. Um, and I believe that brought some pride into my life. Um, I also started doing rodeo. I started hanging out with some bull riding friends. I started to bull ride. 
And then before I knew it, I started to chew tobacco. I got this like bravado. I'm like, oh, I'm a running back. I'm fast. Uh, I'm going to go to college and play football. And then also during this time, I got into a relationship with a girl. And this is where things, you like, you've ever heard of like, you give the devil an inch, he'll take a mile. Uh, I remember um, getting into this relationship with a girl who was not a believer, didn't have the same morals as me, didn't know Jesus the way I knew Jesus, and uh, fell into sexual sin. What that did was it didn't just open up a door for me to be addicted to sexual sin and pornography, but it also, I started rebelling against my parents, my parents who loved me. I started uh, rebelling. I remember a pastor one time. I had some great pastors, great youth pastors and children. I remember a pastor actually looking at me going, what are you doing? You know, and I just, I started to become numb and rebelling, leaving the house. I started drinking. I mean, it was just crazy. It just switched. And I remember at this time in my life that I, like after watching pornography or actually mess, after messing around with a girl, I felt so much conviction and shame. And I remember crying. I remember maybe if, if you're there, you know, it's like, man, God, how could I do this? You've been so good to me. And I felt shame and guilt, but then I do it again and I do it again and I do it again. And it got to the point to where my senior year, I messed up my shoulder playing football. My grades were horrible. I barely graduated college, or excuse me, high school. Barely graduated. I lost any thought about playing football, scholarships. Uh, got my heart broken from all, all these girls and uh, was listening to horrible music. All, I, was, I was a worship leader as a kid, and now I'm listening to this filthy music. Now looking back, I'm like, I can't even believe some of the things I was listening to. But then I got to this point to where after I graduated high school, this, I knew that it was wrong, but I started to turn my back. It was almost like a Jonah moment for me. I knew that I was called to be a minister. I was marked, this and that, but I decided I wanted to become a firefighter. Now, listen, if you're in the fire service, I tell people this fire, the fire service is amazing if you're called to do it. But for me, I know for, for a fact that I was running from God. So after graduating high school, I focused just on the fire service. I graduated from fire academy. I became an EMT. And this, I would say, was was probably the worst time in my life. Uh, on the outside, it looked good. People thought, you know, oh, he's going to be a firefighter. He's going to do something with his life. But deep down inside, I was uh, I was drinking. I moved in with another firefighter. We were partying, partying on the weekends, inviting all these people over, messing around with girls, doing things. I even started experimenting with steroids and just doing all this crazy stuff. And um, it was in this moment the worst of my life. And this is how you know it was bad too. So that when I was always had got convicted or I was feeling numb at this time of my life, when I was sinning and doing all these things, turning my back on God, I, I, I was numb. I, I didn't have any conviction. And that was probably the scariest part for me because I went from being so close to the Holy Spirit to where I feel like I grieved him so much to where now I couldn't even hear him. And it was scary. But I say all of that. It's the exciting part. This is exactly where the Lord met me. And it's exactly um, where he chose to really bring me back. So I happened to go to a church service on a weekend uh, when I was firefighting. And I, I went, and on a Sunday, I was sitting in the back. And I'll never forget it. There's this pastor. His name is Joey. And uh, he was preaching out of Psalms chapter 1. And if you read Psalm chapter 1, it, uh, it says this, and it goes, Oh, the joy of those who are righteous. Oh, the joy of those who are well, the Lord's pretty much. And he was preaching on it. And it says, but the wicked, the wicked, they hang out with other wicked people. They sit with them. They stand. They talk. And then he was talking about how aren't you uh, missing your father? And he was talking about, and I just remember 
as Pastor Joey, as he was praying, I was sitting in the back. And the best way that I could describe it is I just started missing God. I really just started to miss him. And I started having like these flashbacks of like, man, I was called. God, I loved you. I had this sweet presence with you. And now I've just blown it. I've become wicked. I've become lukewarm. I don't even feel your presence anymore. And I remember having these thoughts in my head. And then I just felt like God was just drawing me. And just trying to pull me. And so the pastor gave the altar call. And I remember I, I got up and I was kind of sitting in the back. There was a bunch of people at the altar. And I was kind of just standing in the back. And then the pastor comes and he makes a beeline to me. And he grabs me and he goes, RJ, how are you doing? And I was like, oh, it's going good. Fire, I'm totally lying. I'm all firefighting is going good. Everything, you know. And he goes, he's all, how are you doing? And I was like, I'm, I'm good. You know, I'm good. Fire. And then he asked me a third time. And he said, RJ, how are you doing? And then I just broke down and I was crying. And it was in that moment to where it's like if, if you've ever heard of the prodigal son story in Luke, Jesus said that when the son came to his senses, there was a son who was raised in, in the family, but he squandered his inheritance. He went out and he spent it on, on wild living and on women. And then finally one day he looks down and he's eating with the pigs and he came to his senses. And that was honestly that moment that day in that church for me where I finally was just like, what am I doing, God? And I came to my senses. And the thing that rocks me the most about this moment, and I tell people this all the time, is that when, when I walked up to that altar, I was like expecting God to like spank me. I was expecting my father to have like a lightning bolt, right? And be like, RJ, you idiot. Like you knew better. It's one thing for uh, unbelievers to be out there and then come to the Lord. It's a whole nother thing. I, I felt like personally when, when I was in it to where I spit on Jesus, I ran from him. I knew better. I was raised in church. I went to a Christian high school. Like, God, how can you forgive me? You know? And then I remember that um, in that moment when the pastor was praying for me, all I felt was no punishment, no anger. All I felt was just an overwhelming love of God. And he really was. He was like, my son, you were lost, but who cares about that? You're found now. You're here. And what's so crazy about God is, I mean, just that week, I was probably screwing around with a girl. Who knows what I was doing just that that week? I was probably drinking, partying, and instantly God forgave me. And he didn't just forgive me. He reinstated me reinstated me. He gave me my calling back, my purpose back, and I doubted it. I remember, I don't know what it is with me encountering God in bathrooms, but I remember I was in a bathroom and it was like right after this happened at the church and God forgave me and I felt this love. And I was like, God, are you calling me back into ministry? Because I felt like he was. I was excited and I was like, I want to be a pastor in this, but I felt so much shame and guilt. And I remember being like, God, are you sure? And there's a verse in the Bible that says the gift and callings of God are without repentance, right? So right when I came back, he forgave me, healed me, delivered me, gave me a calling. And I remember I happened to be, have a Bible in the bathroom and it was open. I didn't even like realize where it was. And uh, honest, honest to God truth, I said, God, are you really restoring me? Do you really want me to go into the ministry? Am I, do I still have a calling? And I happened to look down. I don't advise you just opening up your Bible and, and looking at verse, but this time it actually happened. I, I looked down and it was in Jeremiah and this is what it said. It said, this is what the Lord says. And I was like, oh, that gets my attention. It says, if you truly return to me, if you return to me, I will restore you. And if you speak good words rather than worthless words, I'll make you my spokesman. And I was like, man, and it just rocked me. I'm like, God, you've called me. And so now I'm still, I'm still in the fire service. I had it in with this chief. And now I'm trying to go back to my shifts 
right? And this is what God did to me. And so I'm trying to go back. I'm like, how am I going to get out of fire service? And all of a sudden, the desire of being a firefighter was just gone. I worked so hard to do it and become an EMT, all this. And and I climbed all these ladders. I had it in with the chief. And all of a sudden, just gone. I didn't want to do it anymore. And I remember going to shifts. And I heard on the radio, I think it was on Caleb or something. It's like, do the 30-day challenge. Just listen to worship music. So that's all I'm doing. I'm crying in the car, going to my shifts. And I remember sitting at my shifts, and I was having a hard time focused. Probably not good when you're a firefighter. No, I was focusing. I was doing the good. I was doing my work. But I remember when I was alone just reading a Bible and just crying and just having these encounters with God, just even at my station. And uh, long story short, I was able to end up leaving the fire service. That was a miracle in itself, how God set it up. Um, But I ended up leaving, and the pastor that was preaching that Sunday, he's like, hey, RJ, would you ever want to work at a gym? The church owned a gym. And I was like, yeah. So I ended up, God opened up a door. And so now I got to work at this gym, listen to worship music every single, every single day, open it up. It was, it was great how God did it. But then I started to minister to everyone who was coming into the doors of the gym. And I started a Bible study right away. And I realized, wow, God, you're using me. I was just here in the world and now you forgave me. And right away you're using me. I remember praying for people, getting words of knowledge for people. Here's another thing that's really interesting about the Lord is like, I became so hungry for the Bible. I was never, when I was a kid, I loved reading it, but I became so hungry to where I was just devouring it, and things started to make sense. I remember waking up in the middle of the night. I call this a supernatural season, a big supernatural season in my life. I remember waking up in the middle of the night, and I'd be preaching. I'd be preaching, or I'd get sermons. I I never like spoke in front of a church at this time, and I remember writing down all these sermons, and I would I would start a Bible study at the gym. People were getting saved. Grown men were coming, crying, telling me their marital problems. I'm like, uh, let's I don't know, but let's pray. People started to manifest demons, and um, and during this time, I remember going to some pastors and being like, "This is happening," and they're like, "Oh, that's cool. It's really excited." But I was also during this time getting attacked by demons. And so God became very real, the supernatural, God reinstated me, all this, but also the demonic was getting really ticked off. And I was like, whoa, something's very mad. I remember, I remember, um, so I was addicted to pornography and all this, and I remember there was a season where I decided that I wasn't going to sleep with with my girlfriend or ex-girlfriend. I wasn't going to look at things. And I remember one night I had this dream. And in the dream, there was this girl that I used to do things with, right? And she came to me in the dream, and she was pulling my hand, trying to get me to sleep with her. And I'll never forget this. She was, she was pulling, pulling, and I, I ended up yanking my arm, and I said no. And as soon as I said no and pulled away from her, I woke up, and I was like half asleep, half awake. And I remember seeing this nine-foot dark figure in my room. It was, I really saw it and it was there. And at first I thought it was like my dad standing on the couch in the two o'clock in the morning. I'm like, what are you doing? But then I went to say something and I couldn't speak and I couldn't move. And right then and there, I was like, this is a demonic encounter. And the thing, and the best way I could explain it is uh, it looked like the Grim Reaper. Or if you watch, ever watch Lord of the Rings, it looked like a ring wraith looking thing. And so it was there and it screamed at me and then it vanished. And I remember at that moment, 
I just remember thinking like the devil is so ticked off that I came back to Jesus. And that was the dumbest thing that the devil ever did was allow me to see a demon because it just made me crazier for Jesus. And so now I'm going to the gym. I'm preaching. I, I ended up inviting a bunch of friends to my house, my old party animal friends. I'm preaching in, in my parents' house. I started to get these dreams of Africa. Now, I'm, I was raised in church, but I never have gone on a mission trip, and I didn't really want to. I didn't, that was like a missionary calm, like whatever. But I remember having these dreams of Africa and these kids in Africa, and so I started to pray. I was like, God, are you telling me, calling me, uh, am I supposed to go to, on a mission trip to Africa? And I remember it was so crazy, so supernatural. This is all the same uh, couple of months, just supernatural things were happening. I remember I went to Starbucks. And my mom was there, and she had a friend, and it was her sister happened to be in town. And I was like, oh, what do you do? Well, she was a missionary to Tanzania. And it was like that. And the very next week, she goes, hey, would you ever want to go to Tanzania and, and intern? And so before I knew it, I was living in Tanzania for about two and a half months. And I just, that's really, when I was in Africa, that's really where God solidified a lot of things in my life. I got some really great men, men and women of God that were uh, uh, spiritual parents to me, prophesied over me. I remember being at a school in Africa, a children's school, and hearing screaming going on in the principal's office. And here I am in Tanzania, and I'm like, what in the world is that? And I asked someone, and they're like, oh, that's the principal. They're casting a demon out of a kid. And I was like, what? I'm like, and they're like, oh yeah, it's just normal. It's not normal for you in America. And so during the season um, when I was in Africa, I almost started to get upset with myself with family, with friends, and even the American church and with pastors in America. And to be honest, I remember praying. I, I had an opportunity to live in Tanzania. RJ was about to never come back to America, right? I had an opportunity to actually be a missionary there. And uh, I remember praying. I'm like, God, that's what I want to do. But I really felt like the Lord was not going to let you do that. You need to come back to America. And I'm like, God, I don't want to come back to America. America's asleep. For years, I was asleep, you know, and I, I was lukewarm. So, so many Americans were like me, grew up in church and went to a Christian school, private school, and, and they're lukewarm. They, they're not really, you know, even serious about the Lord, and they're asleep. But over here in a, a third world country, you know, they're, they're awake. They see demons. They say, all they care about is Jesus. And so I remember the Lord's telling me, RJ, you need to go back to America because I'm going to wake up my church. I'm going to wake up the American church, and I want you to be a missionary there. And so I end up coming back to America kind of reluctantly, and right away I was like, all right, God, let's wake up your church. And so, again, I started opening up my – it was at my parents' house. We started opening up their house, and I remember there's this guy, Shane, came. Now now he's an, an evangelist, and my brother-in-law, Jaden, now he's a youth pastor. I remember them coming, getting saved, delivered. We started having all these people fill up my parents' house and people getting healed, and, and it was amazing. And we actually called it the awakening. And so I would go around from, to my party, party animal friends, my old ones, be like, hey, the Lord said when I was in Africa that he's waking up the church, that he's going to wake up the church. So come, we called it the awakening. And we were seeing a lot of people wake up. And to this day, there's so much fruit from it. To this day, they're still awake or they're serving the Lord. Amazing. Well, there was this one day, this lady, Laura, came from our church. She said, RJ, have you ever heard of the awakening in Manteca, California? And I said, I, honestly, I've never heard of it, never heard of it, never heard of Isaiah Saldivar. She goes, you need to meet this kid because God is waking up people over in Manteca too. And it's in, happening with hundreds and hundreds, thousands of people. And so I ended up going to the awakening, the revival. It was on Castle Road. 
And I remember meeting, maybe some of you know, Isaiah Salivar for the first time. And I remember crying and seeing so many people getting healed, delivered. And I was like, wow, God, what you told me in Africa, I'm actually seeing. You're waking up the remnant. You're waking up the church. And so that was, oh my goodness, that was years ago. I ended up, at this time, I was already ordained. I was a, a pastor, minister when I came back from Africa. And uh, I joined the awakening team um, as, a, as a leader. I met my wife, Cassandra, there. My wife, she has a radical testimony. She got saved there, delivered there. Her family got saved. My family was set on fire. And then for the next, I would say, eight, nine years, we saw thousands, hundreds and thousands of people get saved, set free, delivered. We, my wife and I, we got married in 2013. We just had our nine-year anniversary. We just had our fourth baby. God has been so faithful to us, and um, it's been awakening ever since. And the best thing that ever happened to me was me coming back to Jesus, you know, and um, he really did reinstate me, and to this day, uh, that's what we're still doing. We're still seeing it. We're still pastoring, ministering seeing so many people come to the Lord and um, have their own encounter with Jesus. So I'm so thankful that God took me back. Now, Roy, for, for people who are watching right now and have been called to pastor, mm-hmm. maybe they're watching right now and, and they're in that place that, that you found yourself in where you were running away. Yeah. What can you say to those people who are watching right now, who are running away, who know somebody who's running away? What can you say to them watching? I can say one thing is um, don't run away. You can't. We know that from the Bible. Even with Jonah, he tried. Um, the biggest thing that you can do is just close put, close your ears to it and um, and do your own thing. But God loves you. Um, your Heavenly Father, it is, it's going to be like the prodigal son story. When you come back to him, he's not there with a the lightning bolt. He's not there to punish you. He just wants to love you. He wants to heal you. He wants to put a robe on your finger, or excuse me, a robe on your back, a ring on your finger, reinstate you. And he wants to say, my uh, my lost daughter, my lost son, now you're found. Now you're found. So come back to him. Run back. Run back uh, while you have time. Yeah. Who is Jesus to you? Oh, man. Jesus, he's not just um, some Jewish man uh, that people think about. He's not just... Uh, the Savior, the Lamb, He's everything. He's He's life. He's transformed my life. He's my love. He's the reason why I'm here. He's the reason why I wake up in the morning. He's the reason why my, I have kids. I had this fear. I remember I was actually being delivered one time and they were casting demons out of me in my past. And I remember I had this horrible fear that I wasn't going to be able to have kids. It was just demonic. And I remember not telling anyone that. And in the deliverance, it was actually Isaiah. And he's like, hey, I have this feeling. Like, I feel like the Holy Spirit told me that you're afraid that you're not going to have kids. But that's a lie from the devil. You're going to have kids. And now we have four. You know what I mean? And um, I'm just so thankful. Jesus has really transformed my life. He's taken me from glory to glory. It's only going to get better. He's touched my wife. And and so many of my friends and my family, and I'm just so thankful. He's my everything. Roy, any last words for people who are watching your testimony right now? Yeah, um, I really feel like in this season of my life, God, uh, as a pastor, as as leaders in the church, our number one job is to equip, to encourage, 
to correct, Paul told Timothy, correct, rebuke, feed, feed your flock. And so if I can give you any advice from God, the ultimate shepherd is that he loves you. He wants to protect you. But I also believe time is short. I'm not a doomsday preacher, but uh, the early church said that they were in the last day. So I do believe that we are in the last seconds, but we don't have to be afraid of it. But if you're running from God, if you are asleep like I was, man, come back to him. Let him wake you up. It's the best decision I have ever made. Come serve Jesus, and he will use you. He will use you. And I also want to say this, too. It's not just pastors and leaders in the church that are called. Every single one of you have a calling over your life. God has a plan, a purpose for you. You're a piece of the body of Christ. And so come let Jesus love on you and let him use you. I realized that part of why I didn't understand how to be a godly woman was because I didn't understand how to be a woman, which was hilarious because I'm a professor of women's studies at the time. Hey guys, welcome to the show. Today I have a very special guest. Uh, She is an author, a speaker, a pastor's wife a former professor of English and women's studies at Syracuse University. And she's written several books, including The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, An English Professor's Journey into the Christian Faith, which is amazing. This, I think this came out in about a while ago, uh, but I highly recommend it. came out in 2012. And then her second book, Openness Unhindered, Further thoughts on an unlikely convert on sexual identity and union with Christ. And I just read this last week. It's amazing. And her, the, the, the next book is The Gospel Comes with a House Key. And this is very convicting. And um, the subtitle is Practicing Radically Ordinary Hospitality in Our Post-Christian World. Welcome, Rosaria Butterfield. Thank you so much, Becca. It's just awesome to finally meet you in person i know virtually i know <laughs> it's great well, to meet you. you know it's weird because we know each other through our books and so now we get to have the real conversation <laughs> yeah and then at the end later on we're going to talk about how you just are finishing up your next book your fourth book so we'll get into that later but let's uh let's talk about first your background mm-hmm. kind of give us your background and your story sort of in a nutshell which you go deep into in Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, which is amazing. So tell us that story, because it's pretty incredible. (laughs) Well, it's not incredible, because incredible means it lacks credibility. So hopefully (laughs) it's not incredible. It's it's credible, but it's amazing. I'm sorry. Yeah, sorry. You can take the English professor out of the classroom, but, you know, here we are. Yeah, they know. Yeah, yeah. So uh, that Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert um, is my story of coming to faith. It's my testimony. And, and I intentionally don't say anything about having been a lesbian in the title. And I do that because I really, I, I wanted it to be not a journey about, you know, one, you know, one flavor of sexuality to another, but what it means to go from unbelief to belief, because that's the radical power of the gospel. That's, that is, that's the deep, root change of the gospel other things flow from that you and i both know that but 
it, you know, it, sometimes, especially in a world that is just obsessed with, um, um, you know, self ID and identity, we forget that there's a spiritual, unbreakable, um, eternal truth of the gospel that changes people from the bottom up. And so here we are. So the, the, um, I, I really isolate a small section of my life. Um, and I talk about what it was like to meet a pastor who was my neighbor um, when I was a lesbian feminist activist professor. And writing a book, I finished my tenure book, um, writing a book on... How long, by the way, how long, I can't remember, how long were you a professor at Syracuse? Yeah, I was there for 10 years. 10 years. And so, you had and tenure. Was, did you have tenure? I did. Yeah, okay. I did. And so, and that's, um, I, I was, I met Ken Smith, the pastor who the Lord used in my conversion, um, just prior to tenure, but everything was ready to go. You know, I had written books, I had done everything but sold my spleen, you know, it was all ready <laughs> to go, right? Um, and, um, uh, you know, and then I was working on a new book, um, really basically on the religious right. And I was just quite curious why people like that hated people like me, you know, it wasn't personal. Um, it was just a question. And so, so I, I started embarking on this book and a little, I think the, you know, the promise keepers came to town and, and I don't know what they right. did. You know, my favorite parking spot was missing that day, which, you know, in Syracuse, New York can actually be a big deal. But anyway, I, uh, you know, I wrote an article, they published it in the, um, in a New York uh, newspaper. It got you know, the whole back page of the, of the front section, which is the big section, and they titled it Promise Keeper's Message is a Danger to Democracy. And I received a lot of feedback, as you can imagine. Um, um, and I wasn't, I wasn't somebody, you know, the prom, by the way, the Promise Keepers are the, it was a men's group that would um, meet, Christian men's group that would meet and talk about, I don't know, what, what was it, the thrust of well, it? I, I don't even know either. I just was, I was just upset because, you know, it was patriarchy, you know, like all these right. Christian men doing Christian men things. I don't know. Like it just, it was, it, it just, it, it was wrong back then. It was just wrong. And so um, I, and I, had, I had just written, uh, co-written the university's domestic partnership policy, which was the forerunner for gay marriage. So, you know, like I, I was in on these conversations. And um, so I, got, I was always getting lots of hate mail and lots of fan mail. That, that has not changed. <laughs> that, that was, yeah. that, lots of things have changed. That has not changed. Um, and, but one of the letters came from Ken Smith. It was an amazing letter. I thought this man is really smart. If I'm going to write a book about the religious right, this is the kind of person I need to understand. Um, and quite frankly, I looked at Ken Smith as my personal and unpaid research assistant. And so I thought, well, of course I'll have dinner with you. I'll have lots of dinners with you. I, I, <laughs> do you mind if I take notes? Um, <laughs> and of course, Ken, being a real Christian, didn't mind at all. He didn't mind at all. Yeah. Um, and so he, um, he and his wife, Floyd, they just they welcomed me into their world and they came into my world and they didn't act as though I was polluting them and early on in our in our uh, friendship Ken said to me there's a difference between acceptance and approval and if you can live with that difference I can live with that difference I love um, that and yeah, tell, like, kind of tease that out a little bit what does he mean by that well, first of all, this was this was 1997, so this was back when the dinosaurs were walking the earth, and yeah. before you know, 
um, <clears throat> before that is an offensive idea. I think today that might be a very offensive idea. But what he meant is, I'm a Christian. I have a certain um, understanding of the world and God's design and purpose in it. And you are an unbeliever, and you have a certain perspective on the world and, um, and the lack of design and telos and purpose in it. And yet we are neighbors, and we could be friends unless you are going to insist that I think the way you do, and I'm going to insist the way you think the way I do. If we can just actually not try to manipulate each other, we can actually be friends. I love that. I wish we could do that today. (laughs) Beckett, we can, and we do. We really do. I mean, Kent and I do. I'll tell you stories at the end about our neighbors and what's going on in our neighborhood, and we can live that way. But yeah, not by the way, do, people might be confused by Ken and Ken. Oh, I know. So it's a confusing thing. Ken was your pastor neighbor. He was my Ken. pastor neighbor. Ken, Ken is your pastor husband. Exactly. Two different right. people. They're not the same what? people. Beckett, why are people confused? I don't know. You didn't understand. break up a marriage. You didn't break up a marriage and like marry the pastor. Okay. <laughs> now, Ken Smith is 90. Four years old and okay. still alive. And when Great. he watches this, we're both going to probably be rebuked for that comment. But okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, okay, go, so go ahead. yeah. So, so um, I started reading the Bible because I'm an English professor. It's not like I could go to a Promise Keepers rally and shove a microphone in somebody's face and say, "How do you feel about you know patriarchy or something?" So I started reading the Bible, and I started meeting with Ken and Floyd, and, um, you know, I had a stick on my desk at the time that said I would rather be um, wrong on an important subject than right on a trivial one, and I've always felt that way. You know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a truth seeker, and um, Ken and Floyd and I met. I probably had maybe 500 meals at his house. That would be like a, that's like the short end of it. Um, wow. I met the entire you know, church community. I saw the way his house functioned. Um, it was amazing, right? I mean, we would we would talk about hard and heavy things. We would read the Bible. We would pray. We would sing songs. Um, we'd come back and do it again. And this was, you know, this is the '90s. This is New York. Um, my lesbian partner and I, we that this, you know, we were so non-heteronormative. We would not use the word marriage, even if. You know, like, it's just, you know, just forget it. But, right. you know, our home was a lot like the Smith's home, except for, you know, we weren't Christians. But our home was open. Um, members of the gay community would, would come in. In fact, in my gay community in New York, somebody's home was open every night of the week um, for food and fellowship and just to stand between you and suicide and you and another, you know, who's, you know, they, who, who's been diagnosed with AIDS now, you know, I mean, it was a scary time, yeah. a very scary time. And I couldn't help but to notice there was a, there was a, an aesthetic and a palpable difference between my house and Ken and Floyd Smith's house. And that's that my house was filled with anxiety and constant, uh, you know, frenetic political activism. And, you know, at Ken's house, they would talk about hard things. But at a certain point, you know, they'd open the Bible, they'd pray, and they would do this thing called leave it at the cross. 
And then they'd go on and laugh and feast and have fun. And, and I got the sense that they weren't insomniacs either. They could sleep at night. Um, and I was, I was intrigued by that. You know, I was intrigued by that. And I came to the Bible with a long list of things I just, I was mad about and I needed to work through. And Ken and Floyd agreed to work through with me, you know, just work through all of these points, you know, patriarchy, slavery, um, you know, just the, these big, these big life issues. These were not small things for me. I had committed my life to standing with the disempowered and to living in a way that, that made this world a better place. And I was confident that the Bible stood against all of that. And Mm -hmm. Um, so anyway, in two years, I read the Bible through seven times, and wow. um, which sounds crazy, but I'm a, you know, that's what I do. So, um, and, but why, by the way, while you're reading through the Bible seven times, or even the first time, what were you, was it, were you getting it? Were you liking it? Like, what, how are you reacting to it? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I have a, I mean, I study hermeneutics. I, I, I'm fascinated by it. Um, in fact, I was really fascinated by it because I had never read it before, um, you know, and I like a new book. I like reading new books, but I was fascinated by it because of the different hermeneutical voices you have in this book. I mean, it's a it's a very meaty book, right? I mean, you've got the um, the judicial law and the moral law and the ceremonial law and and it's interwoven using literally every single genre that ever existed. I mean, that was fascinating to me. Like, I, I really, that was really, really interesting. And so I was very excited about this book. I was very excited to tear this book apart. That's what I did, and I enjoyed doing it. And at a certain point, Ken said to me, um, listen, can I come to your class? And, you know, you're really obviously very excited about the Bible as literature. Can I come to your class and talk about, you know, the overarching story of the Bible as literature, but also as a book of saving faith you know do you mind if i do that and i was like (laughs) you know i was just feeling full-on mama bear like you're not getting near my gay students buddy and so i said well no you know you cannot do that i said but i would love to hear that lecture you have a lecture i'll give it to me wow um and so he did and it was um you know, I remember before the lecture, I, um, I'm the consummate student. I love being a student. I'm not, you know, I, I know how to be the teacher and I know how to be a student. And so I, I really just kind of worked myself into a posture that I was going to be a student. I was going to listen to what Ken Smith had to say. And I was going to try to understand what he was saying from his point of view. Um, I, I wanted to understand why Bible-believing Christians believed the things they did. Meeting Ken and Floyd Smith changed my notion of who these people were. These were not stock figures who were stupid. These were really smart people um, who were really kind to me, even though um, I was not kind to them at all. And so, so I was intrigued by this. And it was a very, very powerful lecture. I still have it. And I have it in a, you know, it was typed up. I said, can I, may I have those notes? He said, sure, here you go. So he did, he, you read the lecture or did he like, did no, he, he he delivered it. He's he a great it. teacher. Yeah, he literally came to my house, and um, I made Ken and Floyd dinner, and, um, you know, all of my friends, you know, kind of disappeared that night. Nobody, nobody <laughs> else was up on this. Um, and he gave me that lecture, and, um, and I remember when he left, 
you know, so he gave me his notes. I took notes and he gave me his notes. And when he left, I remember thinking, if I believed this, my life would be radically different. And I mean, how, and how, by the way, how was your partner at the time feeling about all this going on? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, she was a professor too. And so we, we weren't scared of ideas. Um, we weren't scared of ideas. We love hard ideas. Um, she was a psychology professor. And so at a certain point, I definitely became diagnostically interesting. <laughs> yeah. um, but she, at that point, she was just, you know, this is what I was doing. Um, and then that, that, I think it was that, that Thursday. Thursday was the night our house was open. Um, and I was sharing with everybody what I had learned and because this was so, just so hermeneutically interesting. And so let me say to you at the time, I mean, you know, I was all about diversity, all about diversity. And I was mostly hanging out with 30 something lesbian PhDs in the humanities. Right. So, so, you know, I'm talking about hermeneutics and of course this is everybody else, you know, everybody else is kind of, you know, tracking with me and, um, but there was somebody else at this at this gathering that night, and it was a transgendered friend who had just started coming over. And um, this person's name was Jill, and Jill followed me to the kitchen and sat me down and said, "You are playing with fire, and I know you're playing with fire because I used to be a Presbyterian minister." My name was Matthew. I was married to Mary. We have three children. The gospel changes people, and you are playing with fire. Okay, so this is, and I just tell people, wow. you want to know what gay rights activists talk about in the kitchen? Well, you know, come to my house, right? And so I was taken a little bit aback. And I think I said something like, okay, but, you know, it, it was my consummate, it's my go-to question all the time, my go-to response all the time. What if it's true? What if it's true? What if Jesus is risen and real and we are all in trouble? And what was Jill's response? <laughs> it was awesome. Jill said, <clears throat> I'll pray for you. I'll pray for you to know the truth. Uh, God didn't change me, but I'll pray that God changes you. And by change, what did she mean? Yeah, it's a great question, right? I mean, that you could, there's a lot of ways you can, you could, you could, you could come at that. I wasn't really sure either. Um, and the next day I came home from uh, work and I'm about to let the dogs out and there are these boxes of books which that is my love language you know what I mean like just leave boxes of <laughs> books in front of my front door um and these were Jill's books from seminary wow um I have her, I have Calvin's Institutes right behind us that book is very special to me because in the margins is Jill's marginalia Right, which is one of those wow. old words that you know people people my age use. That's when people write in the margins of their right. books, and they write incisive, important things. And um, uh, during Calvin's um, exposition of Romans one, there were painful, painful marginalia. Yeah, 
and I, and I, I, you know, it just, it just tore my heart out. And I, I came in and I brought the, you know, I brought the boxes of books in and I'm kind of looking through them like, Oh, this is great. And I, and I get to this, I, I, you know, I'm reading the marginalia and I get to this, be careful here, watch out. This can't be true. And I think, well, what are we talking about? And we're talking about Romans one. And then I, you know, open my Bible and I realize, oh, I've read, I've read through this Bible a lot, but Romans one is one of those sections I like to skip a lot. I don't like to, I don't like to really meditate <laughs> on this. And, um, but I did because it was almost like my friend was holding my hands or at least holding my heart with marginalia and um, yeah. read it. And I kept thinking, I wonder if this is true. I wonder if this is true. Um, I wonder I wonder if this is true. Because at that point, I understood that my, my social imaginary, my, the things that I pieced together to call my life that I loved didn't really have a telos. It didn't, there was nothing, there was no design at the end that would make sense. Right. It was all very in the presence. We were to be good people. But this Christian worldview had a telos and this man God who was and is compelling beyond descriptions. And I wondered two things. Could I trust him? And is it true? Mm-hmm. And that was really the turning point. And that's when I decided that I needed to stop working with Ken Smith. I needed to just kind of disappear from Ken and Floyd's life and throw this book project in the way, uh, in the garbage because it was way too dangerous. And, and so I told that to Ken and Floyd. I said, you know, I'm sorry, this, you know, this book project is bad for my health. Um, these questions are too personal and it's, it's too scary to think that you might be right and I might be wrong. It's just too scary to think that. So the and book, so, you mean the book that you were working on, you had to, yeah. you know, not the Bible. Oh, I was happy to, I was happy to throw the Bible away too. That's fine. Okay. You know, all of it. And at that point, Ken and Floyd did not exactly became stalkers, but they came very close. <laughs> yeah. I, you mentioned that. Okay. They weren't going to let go of me. They yeah. weren't going to let go of me. And so at that point I stopped reading the Bible for research and started reading it for personal questions of truth and life and death. And, um, and it was at that point that I was convicted of a number of sins. Um, lesbianism actually wasn't, wasn't, wasn't the top. I mean, people always think, well, and then you were convicted of your sin. No, that, that took, that was so deep. It took so long to get there. You don't even want to know, (laughs) but I was convicted of the sin of somehow thinking that I had been on the side of truth and justice and diversity and reparations and, kindness and compassion and care when it really was Jesus that was persecuting the whole time. I was, I was convicted that, yeah, that's a sin. I committed that sin. Um, And I, I, um, yeah, I remember one, you know, one time, you know, I started going to church. I just showed up one day and, you know, in my butch haircut and my Doc Martens and my my (laughs) piercings. (laughs) And I'm just going to tell you, I was the only person dressed that way in a Reformed and Presbyterian church. I I can imagine, yeah. Um, But, you know, I I also discovered that sermons were this 
totally different different thing and they would they would really force me to think about things that I hadn't thought before and one of the things that I did realize after um, after Ken's preaching actually through the gospel of John it had nothing to do with sexuality but I I realized that part of why I didn't understand how to be a godly woman was because I didn't understand how to be a woman which was hilarious because I'm a professor of women's studies at the time. But anyway, that's, you know, irony. Is exactly. Yeah, so, maybe that was the problem. Yeah. So I was a mess and I, convicted, I you know, committed my life to Christ because I believed he was true and real. And I had no idea what he was going to do with a mess like me. Wow. And then you ended up and then you broke up with your partner, right? Well, I did. I mean, it was pretty mutual. She was not, nobody, who wants to be, you know, like, I wasn't fun to be around. To right. Say that least. No, I mean, I mean, it, I really do mean it. Like, it's just, in a, in a, in a lesbian relationship, in that culture, and at that moment, being politically on board with each other was a part of the intimacy of our relationship. It wasn't like, you know, I don't know, that was, that was a glue. And so if that wasn't there, that, that wasn't there. Um, but I also, yeah, it's interesting like- because in, in, you know, in my experience living as a gay man for 20 years in Los Angeles, it's a very different, as you know, lesbians and gay men are very different and pretty, and, and uh, oftentimes antagonistic toward each other. And, mm-hmm. but you're I in the lesbian world from my experience it was more about community and political mm-hmm. activism and 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 that's kind of what the glue was that that mm-hmm. bound those that group together whereas in the gay men's world it was sex and it was a lot of sex mm-hmm. a lot of alcohol a lot of drugs mm-hmm. and it's weird because uh that's that's the sense of community that I experienced in Los Angeles it was it was never really about like, let's get together and, you know, just love each other and hang out and, and be with one another. It was like, no, let's go to a gay bar. Let's like hook up with somebody and let's do drugs or whatever. It was, it was all, it was so much based around that. Like that's what holds that whole community together in a, in a large, I mean, obviously there are exceptions, but in in large part, that's kind of the the fundamental difference between gay men and lesbians. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. We all thought you guys were just a bunch of sexual hedonists and you thought we were just a bunch of political social prigs. Exactly, exactly. But but then AIDS came and we worked together, at least in New York. There was there 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 was we were stuck with each other and that's all there was to it. And I think that's really how the gay community, at least in New York, became a community. Before that, it just was a kind of you know, grab bag of very different, very, very different interests. Yeah. Yeah. And so and how long was it after you committed your life to Christ, after you came to faith until you met Kent and married him? Yeah, that, well, that was a couple of years. Yeah, that was a couple of years. Although um, I would say the Lord worked very quickly. Um, I mean, I, I was convicted that, it was a sin to depart not only from what the Bible said we were supposed to do with our bodies, but from what the Bible said we were supposed to do with our, our image bearing. 
that Genesis 1:27, 28, we were made in the image of God. Um, and that, that being made in the image of God, we're, not, we're made in the image, not as the image. And that, that sexual difference was something I, I, knew, I knew I really needed to understand um, because that was just terrifying to me. And I should say, I wasn't, it wasn't that I had never had any relationships with men. Um, you know, I was of the generation, we came out of the Adrian Rich, uh, you know, compulsory heterosexuality and lesbian existence. So all of my lesbian peers, we had had, um, you know, experiences with men. So some of us had been married and had children with men. Um, and we just called ourselves informed lesbians. That's all we were, you know, like we, we weren't like, oh, I, you know, I have no idea what I'm not, what I'm missing. No, we really did. We really did. Um, and so then the Lord had to really impress upon me that there was something more to being human than having a sexual orientation. And what was, what was kind of interesting about that is I'm a 19th century scholar. So I'm a, I'm a, um, you know, my, my, you know, romantic and Victorian literature and that, that, you know, Freud, Hegel, Marx, and Darwin are, you know, were my, you know, kind of go-to philosophers. And so I actually knew I had studied and even taught how sexual orientation as, um, as a category of personhood first entered the world. And, um, and so I knew it wasn't like as old as Adam or, you know, somehow kind of natural. I knew right. it was a socially constructed category of personhood with a political uh, agenda and a um, an, and an evolutionary one as well, and so um, so I had to you know I just uh, you know how it is when you when you I don't know when your whole life turns upside down you have to wonder well how much of my own feedback loop have I been you know drinking um, right. am I am is lesbian who I am or is it how I feel and um, you know it. it there's a particular way that the 19th century created an epistemology, a whole, a whole um, zeitgeist of um, value infused in your personal feelings. I, I mean, you know, so much so that it is really funny the way C.S. Lewis critiques that in Screwtape Letters, where he's, you know, Screwtape is talking to Wormwood and he says, you know, no, 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 no. Don't let your person start to struggle with identity let's make sure he gets a toothache. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, no, 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 no. Um, and I love, by but, the way, I love Carl Truman's book on the modern self. It, that's such yeah. a great, great book. But yeah. 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 So, so I, you know, I had to think about those things and I, and I, and I had to pray about those things. And I remember one night I'm, so at this point, my, 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 my lesbian partner moved out, but then some other um, women who were lesbians who lived in my house were there. And I remember, um, you know, I remember just praying that the Lord would make me a godly woman. That I, I mean, you know, just like, in fact, I, I remember one of the women from church just saying, Rosaria, just give it up and pray that the Lord would make you a godly woman. <laughs> I don't even... You know, and so I, I, I did. I went that night and I prayed that the Lord would make me a godly woman. And then I laughed out loud because that was such a hilarious prayer. And then one of my housemates, who's a Wiccan witch, is you know, knocking on my door. Are you okay in there? You know, you're laughing to yourself. Wow. <laughs> um, but that was, you know, prayer is really powerful. If you pray that the Lord will, in yeah. fact, 
And, you know, like, I, I just, you know, I mean, what, what Jill said was right. You know, I'm playing with fire. You're playing with fire. You want to follow Jesus. Um, you know, the, I would not say the biggest question is, do you love Jesus? I would say the biggest question is, does Jesus love you? And one of the ways you know is, are you willing to love Jesus more than your notions? Um, are you willing to pray and ask God to help you to hate your sin without hating yourself? Do you want to really see your sin through the crosshairs, you know, so that you can actually, you know, as John Owen would say, mortify it, it, or do you want to see it in a selfie at a conference? Right. You know, like, oh, hey, you know, here I am at a conference with all the other people who sin just the way I do, and look at all of us. We're having a great time. Yeah. How do you want to see your sin? And so those were... Those were hard but good moments. And I should tell you that the church was amazing, right? This was an amazing church. And I remember, you know, one day going to, you know, to the, you know, the women in the church and feeling a little pouty, like, oh, look at all the things I have to give up. And, and I remember somebody saying, why don't you walk around this whole church and ask people what they had to give up for Jesus? And then come back to me and tell me if you have to give up more. Okay? Amen. I love that. I love that. And so, I don't know, these were people who loved me and who just were willing to tell the truth. And there is this God who loved me and yeah. was willing to tell the truth. And so those, that was a powerful time. But yes, it was two years. And one of the things that I learned through being married to Kent Butterfield now, you know, well over 20 years, um, is that the covenant of Christian marriage is not just two heterosexual Christians doing whatever they want. That the covenant of Christian marriage is learning to be one flesh. Right. And it's for that reason. And, and I'm not, let me, let me be very, be very careful. I, I am not suggesting that marriage is a solution to any kind of sin pattern. So I'm not suggesting, and I want anybody to hear like, Oh, this is what I'm struggling with. Let me go get married. And that's going to solve my problems. No, but there is such a blessing in covenant marriage that I would be so remiss if I said, you know, if I, if I, if I failed to say that, you know, that learning to be one flesh and learning to be one mind is as a Christian in, in a Christian covenant of marriage is part of how God changed you know changed me and healed me and heals me still heals me wow um and so i mean it, you know people say well what's your sexual you know orientation now i mean I, I have a long lecture on how sexual orientation is not actually a category of personhood and we can go there but we're good yeah we'll get to you in a minute but, but i ahead. would just say is that my my affection and attraction is for my husband and that's it yeah. And I think that's great. Yeah. I mean, like, I, you know, as a pastor's wife, I counsel a lot of women. And, you know, it, let me tell you what, it would be, re- you know, to really keep yourself on a short leash as a Christian. It's a really good thing. And God will bless you and give you great happiness and joy. But it's totally different. Being one flesh means is a totally different thing than just two Christians in a marriage doing whatever they want. And so that's why I think the whole category of gay Christianity, mixed orientation marriage, I think it's a travesty. I think it makes mockery of any number of things. The gospel would be one of those. Right. And you, and so also at a certain point you resigned from your 
job, yeah. right? And and your friend, I, I, I think you're, I can't remember which book you talked about this in, but you, your friends were like, why do you, why are you doing this? You're destroying your life. You work so hard to get your PhD and your, prof- and your tenure. And like, so how did you, I guess it just became untenable to keep doing what you were doing. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I, I was married, I was married to a, to a pastor in Virginia and I wasn't going to keep a, you know, a lectern in New York, it, you know what I mean? Like it just, it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't going to happen. It wasn't, we, and we couldn't work as a team, as a ministry team, if I did that. Was it a difficult, I mean, not a difficult decision, but was it, was it a strange decision for you to just say, okay, I'm out of here. I'm done it with this. It was terrifying. It was terrifying. And even, I mean, like even my dean, my, you know, my academic dean, the president, I mean, I had all kinds of people you know, kind of like, why don't we slow down? Why don't you take another sabbatical? Let's not make this decision really fast. You can work remotely. You know, I mean, it was, it was a really, it was so hard. It was so scary and hard. And, um, and really even good Christian friends saying things like, well, um, no, this doesn't make sense. How about if like Kent becomes the stay-at-home dad and you, you, you know, you keep the, yeah, you're going to leave a tenured position at a, at a, at a tiered research university to be a church planter's wife. I mean, that's what idiots do, right? Right. Um, and then people would say things like, you'll never write any more books. You'll never, you'll never have a life of the mind. You'll never, ever, ever, ever. And, by God's grace alone, I, I don't think I would have been able, I mean, I've written a lot, you know, the books I've written since throwing my life away, apparently, have been much better books than the books <laughs> I've written before. I mean, you know, I've, I've written more than the books you've held up, and that's good. You know, yeah, you yeah, sorry, I, I, yeah, I don't so, have the full list here, the full bibliography, you know, but what, it, and what about your students, where, I mean, the students that you were closely connected with at that time where they just like, what is going on with you? You're leaving. What is happening? And that's, I think what we need to realize too, that my students and my lesbian partner and my lesbian colleagues, they felt betrayed because they were betrayed. They, I betrayed them, um, you know, and by, I betrayed them by following Jesus. I beach when, when I betrayed them, I, I stopped. Um, I stopped directing dissertations in queer theory. And can you imagine? I mean, just think about it. What it would have been like to be an international. This happened actually to be an international student who, you know, came halfway across the world to work with me in queer theory, and I'm now leading dissertations in Christian hermeneutics. You know, and literally your. <laughs> Your career is in the toilet before you even, you know, got off the plane. You know, it's horrible, right? I mean, it was really, and one of, that was one of the hardest things about, about I think, I mean, there were, all of it is, I mean, I, I, I don't mean to be so dramatic about it, but, you know, everything was so hard back then, but it's what it was. And I ended up hurting the people I loved the most. And that was horrible. I mean, I was, I just, you know, as I, God is, you know, the, the irony of it all. I was scheduled to do the incoming address for all um, graduate students. That's about 3,000 people. And 
I was supposed to talk on queer theory and I just, you know, I said, well, I can't do that anymore. So I'm going to talk on Christian hermeneutics. And, you know, you can imagine, like, you can just imagine, like, how that was, was working for my, you know, now, I mean, I was, it was very, you know, like there were many Christian students who appreciated this, but the people that I knew by first name and last name who had been part of my life and part of my world. um, And it got to be so bad that one of my graduate students uh, tried to commit suicide. And I was, he was an international student. And so I was her, um, kind of in loco parentis and the phone rang it's you know that that's back when phones were on the wall in the yeah, kitchen yeah you know? i miss those days um, i know long back when the dinosaurs walked the earth and um it was the hospital and and i remember realizing what was going on and realizing that i needed my christian friends there um if i was going to be her primary person but also she needed our lesbian friends there And that led to some of the most awkward, uncomfortable, and fruitful conversations of my life with, you know, my, at that point, ex-partner and my former lesbian community, you know, doing what it does best, surrounding somebody with love and care and concern. And now my, my Christian community doing what it does best, surrounding with, you know, concern and care and compassion and it was very tough. It was very, very tough. And I was, I was not innocent. Um, there's a cost to following Christ. Yeah. And, and it's one thing for it to be your cost when you're a believer and you get the Lord and you have the promises of the, of, of the scriptures and you have eternal life in Christ. But it's even, it's something truly horrific when it's the people who are just mangled in the process who do not want the lord who are not you know who 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 are hearing what you're saying and rejecting it and um and and you know it's just it was it was horrible that was really horrible and i think that's part of what people don't realize and i remember talking to one of the deacons in my church and he even said rosaria if we had any idea what a bloodbath your conversion would have been i don't think we would have been praying as hard (laughs) (laughs) we need about 10 years to recover from this and so i think it's so silly you know when, when christians pray oh you know you know, that's good. Pray. Please pray for the conversion of the lost, but then be ready to catch all those pieces. Yeah. Cause there's, a, a, lot, <clears throat> there's a lot, there's a lot of uh, blood uh, flowing after when I got saved with my mm-hmm. old friends. So it was a, uh, it was a crazy time. Yeah. Um, now we're kind of running out of time. So, but I want to get to just a, a few more questions if you don't mind. Okay. Yeah. Um, so you talked about, sexual I think you talked about you talk about this whole idea and openness unhindered and um, you talk about we talked about sexual orientation and and you talk about Freud and how this kind of idea of sexual orientation and identity came into being mm-hmm. so g- can you just give us a little overview of that yeah 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 and so that's a whole chapter in openness and hindered is how yeah. the, how this idea came into being and and this is where you you really need to understand that that you know words have a material force and so when people say look it's just semantics you can just like throw george orwell at them just take a nice big copy of 1984 and like blow <laughs> plus it good, against, double plus good yeah against the head and see what happens because words have a material force and so at a certain point in the 19th century as um, 
existentialism and nihilism are 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 really in and, and Darwin also are just infiltrating um um and, and also you know the academy we, yeah and we've got the world wars and we've got you know there's just a lot of a lot of um you know just the foundations are destroyed and and how could a holy god be looking over all of this and um and so Freud comes on on you know really comes of age with a new definition of personhood, that what a person really is, is someone whose sexual desires have different sexual objects. And he attaches an ontology to that, that that is personhood. Um, that, so there is a, you know, you can be a gay person um, and you can be a heterosexual person. At that point, those were the only categories. And even someone like Michel Foucault, you know, the French, uh, gay French historian of ideas who died in, uh, of AIDS of, in 19, tragically, in 1981. Yeah, he had a very, very um, intense kind of sexual life. Yeah. Yes, he did. But he even was, was convinced that this whole idea of, you know, as he put it, you know, the sodomites now as a category of, you know, of acceptable personhood, this is going to be terrible. This is a yeah. terrible idea, you know. Um, and so at first there was, I think, concern uh, that this was just going to become one more way to marginalize um, a population of people whose sexual desires attach to same-sex objects. But, but very quickly, everybody latched onto this, okay? And the idea that who you are is how you feel it launched a, you know, just a Pandora's box, really. Um, yeah. And and I think it led a lot of people, uh, uh, you know, into very strange places. Um, you are not who you, how you feel. Feelings are ephemeral, and um, and and even even the feelings that are persistent. If those feelings, when you hold them up to the Word of God, if those feelings attached to a desire that God calls sin, God is right. It's sin and your feelings don't make it less than that. And, um, and I think what, what you have in the gay Christian movement, side A or B, uh, because in some ways side A is more theologically accurate, at least, at least if you're side A, two plus two equals four. Um, but, but side A or B, it, it comes from the same um, uh, a distortion of the gospel. You you have a, um, a a category of personhood that God has denied. Uh, in Christ, what you are is a male or female image bearer of a holy God, with a soul that will last forever, and a body that will be glorified in heaven. Should you be a believer or or cursed uh, in hell, should you be an unbeliever? You're, it is a there's a material reality to this, and that material reality is very very significant. I've known a number of people who are they call they call themselves detransitioners, right? These are people who had tried um, to go through a sex change operation, believed they were transgendered, came to Christ, and realized that you know what. No, and I have mutilated myself, and this is awful. But in the New Jerusalem, I will be made whole again because being male or female is ontological. It's eternal. It's not. Yeah. It, it, you know, that. It, so in some ways, the the gospel might be the best news to people 
who uh, think they are transgendered more than, more than you know, it, it, it's the clearest example of God has you. He's not going to, he's not going to forsake you. Yeah. And by the way, just so we're, we're clear to the audience, when you said side A is more accurate, you didn't mean mm-hmm. it's more accurate than side B. You meant it's more accurate than the it's more, it's more internally postmodernist kind of view. Yeah, it's, it's more internally consistent. Side A would say um, we should not, the Bible can't be trusted, but the, the, um, the ethos of the Bible or its trajectory, the trajectory of, 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 the, of the Jesus of love uh, means that if I say I love Jesus, then Jesus has got to love me. I've already, you know, dismissed the Bible as something that is inerrant. It's not. I cut, you know, I've cut this part out and that part out and that part out. And so here's Jesus, my paper mache imaginary doll, and he loves me. And therefore, if you don't, you aren't being a Christian. And I, I have a very dear friend. In fact, she um, uh, was a research assistant of mine at one point. And um, uh, she came to me recently and she said, you know, Rosaria, it makes me really sad that one of us is going to go to hell. Uh, she's a side A Christian who believes that if you think that um, homosexuality is a sin, you know, that's you're, you're creating a context of emotional abuse in people's lives. And that's what I, I just wanted to clear up what side A and side B. Yeah, are. well, side A would be practicing homosexuality. And yeah. side B is um, allowing for a gay under an Freudian understanding of personhood and self identification while at the same time claiming Christ's love and blessing over that. And I would say Christ cares as much about your biblical anthropology as he does what you do in bed. Right. But what about, you know, the revisionists would use kind of the argument that uh, your Freudian kind of argument that you just talked about, that, you know, the ancients, Paul didn't understand what sexual orientation was, where, Mm -hmm. you know, we moderns, we understand it. So Paul didn't know what he was really talking about. So what, I mean, how do you respond to the revisionists who who would use that argument? Right, 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 right. Well, what I would say, though, see, the revisionists aren't just revising that. Um, The revisionists are revising what the Bible actually is. The Bible is a unified biblical revelation. You could no more take six clobber verses and kind of yank them out of the Bible and read them as, you know, just, you know, bad, bad, out, that's a problem, uh, then you could take a, you know, a scissors to it and just make your paper mache, make your Jesus, my little imaginary, uh, you know, so, so we would just disagree about what the Bible is. That's the, that's really what we're disagreeing about. We're, right. we're, before we're disagreeing about what it says, we're disagreeing about what it is. And, and I know, you know, I've had, you know, Matthew Vines and others say, oh, how dare Rosaria, you know, how can you read my heart? I'm not reading your heart. I'm reading your book. I don't know how to read your heart, <laughs> but I know how to read your book. And you can't get exactly. To exactly. I mean, it, it, it's not, it's not rocket science. And you and I, we, we agree on this. Uh, we agree on this, the semantics of all this, uh, but talk about just quickly. Wait, 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 oh, what ahead. do you mean? What do you mean we agree on the semantics of this? What well, what, I, what I'm about to say, uh, what okay. I'm about to say is that, is that, or not the semantics, but the um, reality of this, I guess. Okay. Yeah. Is that 
um, just the idea of, of call, if I'm a, a follower of Christ and I'm, you know, I have same sex attraction and I'm celibate or whatever, I'm single and I'm celibate, but I still identify as a gay Christian. Just tell us what the problem with that is. Yeah. Well, the problem is sin unfits a believer for divine service, says Calvin. And you cannot desire something that is sinful without sinning. Um, Jesus even goes so far as to say things like cut off your hands, right? I mean, it's the, and so that's why this whole, you know, this manipulation that some therapists are using with parents of young children saying, well, would you rather have a dead son or a living daughter and Eugene as a Christian you want to just say well let me tell you what Jesus says about that actually so because let me tell you about this I mean that that's not going to work with me that's not a hook that a Christian can get hooked on but but side B Christianity is different from biblical Christianity I mean I I've got seven different points here they have a different understanding of personhood a different understanding of biblical authority a different understanding of sin, temptation, desire, redemption, hell, including original sin, actual sin, and indwelling sin. They have a different understanding of the centrality of the cross. The blood of Christ does not make an ally with the sin it crushes, never has, never will. Uh, and they do have a different understanding of a biblical sexual ethic because if you desire something sinful, you're a sinner in need of repentance and grace, not a sexual minority in need of a parade, a party, and a conference. I love that. Well, yeah. There's also a different understanding of God's holiness and a different understanding of how you're justified before a holy God. It's a different religion. Yeah. And I don't care how nice these people are, how much they smile, how much they tell you they love Jesus. I'm not saying they won't ever be saved. I'm, and, you know, and here's the other thing I want to say, too. Is nobody's saved by your religion. You're not saved by your religion. Your religion, though, can condemn you. Protestants love to talk about that in terms of Catholicism, right? Catholics who believe they're saved because they have, you know, been baptized by a Catholic priest. Well, how is that any different than the gay Christian who says, well, I don't believe the Bible is true on any of these points. Um, I'm going to, you know, I, I'm going to stick to my traditional biblical sexual ethic but I'm not going to uphold biblical understandings of sin, redemption, justification, repentance, um, personhood. Um, but I know Jesus loves me, uh, you know, because I'm, I'm a product of the 21st century. If you self-ID, don't anybody argue with me. How can you argue with me? Back it, I'm a dragon. Don't you tell me I'm not a dragon. You know, I'm, you're going to be, you know, emotionally abusing me now. Right. So, and, and I think the big issue really is this category of indwelling sin. I think for most of us, sexual sin is an indwelling sin, which is a really hard sin. It is. It's a miserable one. And it's, you know, and the more you, and you and I know this, the more you practice it, the more, the deeper. The more goes, indwelling it is, yeah. The more indwelling it is. <sighs> yeah. But, you know, you can't minimize, you can't domesticate your indwelling sin. You can't. You know, your indwelling sin is a little bit like a little baby tiger. You know, don't put a little pink collar on her and name her Fluffy and bring her in and say, but look, she's got a collar and a leash because you know what? Someday she's going to grow up and eat you alive because that's her job. 
And that's what indwelling sin does too. And that's why it's the hardest thing for the Christian to do. And it really is. I don't want to minimize this. It's not to hate your sin without hating yourself is that's just the hardest thing in the world. And you can't do it without God's grace. You can't do it without the, the, the kind company of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Amen. It's not something you can do in the flesh. Right. And um, I mean, we're so bummed that we're running out of time, but I just, I have two more questions for you. Okay. I have more, but I'm going to have to cut it. Um, I'm sorry. No, it's good. I love, because I love the conversation we're having. It's,
Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Confusion is confusion. God has said what he meant, and he meant what he said. You can cut out, take out, overlook, uh, go by your own judgment, what you think and what you feel. But God has said what he meant in his word, and he meant what he said. <laughs> and uh, he won't lie for us. Heaven and earth will pass away before one little jottle of his word will fail. And uh, it appears that sometimes people have a solid answer, but the answer is Jesus, the truth. Yeah, the way and the life. Hallelujah. And we thank God this morning. Listen, we're going right in with Bishop uh, G.E. Patterson this morning. And uh, I just love to hear him share the word. And so let's take a listen. I want you to turn with me to the book of Hebrews, chapter 9, and also the book of 1 Peter, chapter 1. As we prepare to approach the table of communion, We want to once again look at the debt that was paid by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 9, if you have it, say amen. amen. Let's read verses 11 through 14. Let's read together. But Christ, being come and high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctified to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. Uh, let's begin reading at verse 13. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lust in your ignorance, but as he which has called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. And if ye call on the Father, who without respect of person judges according to every man's work, 
pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition of your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. I want to talk to you today from the subject, uh, there is power in the blood. There is power in the blood. As we approach the communion table on this uh, third Sunday in this month of October 2001, it is uh, approximately 2,000 years since our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ suffered, bled, died upon the cross of Calvary. And from that day unto this, not only multiple thousands, but millions who have been born into uh, planet Earth have heard the old story how Jesus came from glory and how that he suffered, bled, died for our sins. But not only did he die, but he was buried and three days later arose from the grave declaring that all power in heaven and in earth is given unto me. Well, it is an old story, and sometimes it is forgotten even in the church. We find other reasons. We come to fellowship our friends. Uh, we come in order to just hear and be entertained by the music. Uh, we come because uh, the gospel of prosperity is quite popular. We have all kinds of reasons but I believe that this service that we call the Holy Communion, the Lord's Supper, uh, the various names that are attached to it, was given by the Lord in order that we might remember what it is really all about. Now from the beginning of time, from the beginning of creation, there is a red line a blood line that runs from Genesis to Revelations in order that we might understand that God, who is sovereign, did not look at the salvation of mankind as being some little cheap thing. Understanding that uh, Peter says we were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold, but with the precious. And that word precious it calls to mind something that is really expensive, something that is bought at a tremendous price. The first glimpse that we get into of the workings of the blood is found in Genesis when man first sinned. God made man sinless. 
made him from the dust of the ground, formed this part of man that we call the body. But even though he molded and shaped Adam, the Bible says, into the image of God, it was not until God breathed a portion of himself, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, that man became a living soul. And God gave to man, and when I say man, I'm speaking not just of the masculine gender, because when God created the Adam, he also created Eve, because here was the one and only time when man actually gave birth to woman. And from that time, woman gives birth to man and to woman alike. But God took from his rib portion of man's self, created Eve, and gave them instruction as to how they were to tend the garden, told them what they were to do, what they were not to do. But such is the nature of the human spirit being left with free will that Satan presented himself to the woman in the form of a serpent. And of course the serpent at this time we don't know what it looked like. For one of the curses was God put him down on his belly. But the word says he was the most subtle. He was probably the most beautiful animal that there was before God put him down on his belly and he became that loathsome creature that most of us run from. He beguiled the woman. She ate of the forbidden fruit. She gave to her husband and he ate. And suddenly their eyes came open. And they recognized good from evil and recognized they had done evil and understood immediately that they were naked. Prior to this, they were naked and unashamed. But sin brought with it shame. And they attempted to hide themselves behind fig leaves. But what does God do? But he comes down. And the voice of God is walking in the cool of the evening, calling Adam, where art thou? He said, Lord, I, I, I hid myself because I was naked. How did you know you were naked? You, you weren't even supposed to have sense enough to know you were naked. <laughs> have, you for eat, have you eaten of that forbidden fruit? And, and, and here the man not willing to take responsibility for his own actions said, well, this woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave unto me, and I did eat. And ever since then, people have been making excuses for their actions. Young man, you've got too much to offer. You have no business behind the prison bars. You ought to have just passed the bar with your doctor of jurisprudence, ready to be a lawyer. You, you ought to be a doctor. 
You ought to be a teacher. You ought to be a minister. What are you doing behind bars? Well, you got to understand that I was born in the ghetto. And, and my father was an alcoholic. Yeah, and, and, and my mother had to make a living and she became a prostitute. Yeah, but out of all of what happened, how many times did you hear the gospel preach? How many times did you hear somebody telling you that it doesn't matter where you came from? There is a God that loves you. We always want to put ourselves as the victim born under a bad sign and if it wasn't for bad luck wouldn't have no luck at all I'm, I'm under a curse but I want to introduce you to one named Jesus that it doesn't matter what kind of sign you were born under doesn't matter what kind of curse you were born under I want to introduce you to somebody who can break the curse and make a new creature out of you He said, yes, the woman you gave me, she gave to me and I did eat. And God, knowing that fig leaves did not adequately cover, God himself shedded the first blood, killed an animal, and took skin and covered their body with the skin of an animal. And the Lord said that the day is coming when the seed of the woman is going to bruise the head of the serpent. And God himself started that little thin bloodline that runs from Genesis to Revelation. Adam and Eve gave birth First of all, the two sons, one named Cain, one named Abel. Abel was a tiller of the soil. He brought an offering from the fruit of the ground. And God rejected his offering. Rejected both uh, Cain, rather, brought that offering from the ground. And God rejected Cain and his offering. While Abel somehow recognize that in the heart of God, even as it is recorded here in Hebrews 9 and 22, almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without shedding of blood is no remission. Even though the lawgiver hadn't been born, Abel understood that God wanted something with blood in it. And he brought a blood offering and God received Abel and received his offering. But what does Cain do but get jealous? Still got folk that's jealous of the relationship between God and somebody else. And I've often said, I don't know, I don't really know what was going on with that vegetation that Cain was raising. But somehow he must have abused something. Some kind of fruit of the ground he must have abused because it helped put murder in his heart. And in his jealous rage, he killed his brother Abel. 
And God came down to talk to Cain. Where is your brother? Well, ask me. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, your brother's blood. Cry it to me from the earth. I know what you've done because there was life in the blood. And even though you killed your brother, the life in the blood talked back to me and told me what was going on. God somehow from this day on began to put it in the heart of those who would worship him that when you come before me, bring a blood offering. Instituted it officially during the time of Moses when Israel had been in bondage for 430 years. God raised up a deliverer by the name of Moses and through Moses brought several plagues upon the Egyptians. And every time behind the plague, Pharaoh would say, all right, I'll let them go. But then his heart would be hardened. The Bible lets us know God hardened his heart in order for God's plan to totally destroy Pharaoh. But the last plague that the Lord brought was the plague of the death of the firstborn of Egypt. Getting ready for it in that 12th chapter of Exodus, he told Moses, the night has come. Round about midnight. See, I used to think that the Lord said at the very stroke of midnight, but he didn't. He said around midnight. Which simply meant, you know, don't, don't start playing around in and out of the house thinking that if I can make it in at one second to midnight, I'm safe. God wouldn't give them exact time. He said around midnight. So before you go in the house, kill a lamb of the first year. You can take him out from among the sheep or you can pick him out from among the goats. What I'm saying now, you can get it all in Exodus chapter 12. Now he said that lamb should be of the first year. You ought to select him on the 10th day of the month. Hold him until the 14th and then kill him in the evening. They were to kill him outside the door. There was a little pit where the blood would run off, which put blood at their feet. Then they were to take the hyssop and strike the side post on both the right and the left and also strike the upper post. So when they went into their house, glory to God, they step over a puddle of blood. Blood would be on the right, blood would be on the left, blood would be over their head. And the Lord told them when they came in the house, once you come in through the blood-painted doorway, you don't have to worry because around midnight, when the death angel begins to strike, if you go in your house through the blood-painted doorway and stay there, you won't have to worry about anything. Ah, oh, that's why I don't understand people that's in and out, in and out. 
God wants you to come in and stay put. There's nothing to keep searching for when you find Jesus. Having boldness, brethren, to enter into the holiest by a new and living way. You don't want to talk about going back out, but you just want to draw a little bit closer. And I believe that 13th verse said, and the blood shall be a token unto you in the houses where ye are. And when I see the blood, I'm not going to even have the angel to inquire as to whether you are a native-born Hebrew or whether you are of mixed race. You may even be one of the Egyptians, but the thing that's going to save you is not your nationality, but the blood. And I have to say this, yes, we're looking forward to the convocation, and this will be my first time presiding over the convocation as the presiding bishop of the Church of God in Christ. And I love the Church of God in Christ. But we got too many people today who think that your denominational label is what's going to save you. But I got news. You can be Kojic. You can be Baptist. You can be Methodist. You can be Apostolic. You can be Charismatic. You can be Word of Faith. You can be Seventh-day Adventist. I don't care what you are. The only thing that's going to save you is the blood. When I see the blood, he said, then I'm going to pass. And that word Passover comes from the Hebrew word literally meaning to hop over, to jump over, to skip over you. That death will be in the street. But when it gets to the house that's marred by the blood, instead of death coming in, death will just leap. You ought to look at somebody and say, why are you worried about terroristic activity? If you're covered by the blood, God said, I'm going to pass over you. Glory to God. Now throughout the rest of these mosaic books, hallelujah, Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, you see the people of God approaching him. Whenever they get ready to worship, they've got to have a blood sacrifice they could either have a lamb a goat glory the bull and heifer and if they were poor and didn't have any livestock they could go out in the woods and catch a pigeon or get a turtle dove but God said don't come before me empty when you come, you've got to have some blood. 
Mm, glory. Hallelujah. And their offerings of various sorts had to be of an animal that had blood. He had to be pure. Yeah. He couldn't have disease. He couldn't be crippled. He couldn't be blind. But it had to bring the best that they could supply. Because God was looking for blood. Now somebody would say, what's so great about the blood of a bull and heifer, pigeon, a dove, a lamb, a goat? Simply they were substitutionary. They were not actually that which would wash sins away. But they were the things that represented that which was to come. Just like God commanded them to use oil. Oil to anoint the priests. Oil to anoint the Levites that served in the worship of the Lord. Oil to anoint the king. Oil to anoint the holy vessels in the tabernacle. But that was only a symbolic anointing. Prefiguring the day that would someday come that we would call the day of Pentecost when God would pour out the Holy Ghost upon all flesh. You don't hear what I'm saying? So even when Peter stood in the house of Cornelius, he said how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth, not with the substitute, not with a bottle of olive oil, but God poured out on him the true anointing, which is the Holy Ghost. And I'm cautioned to tell you that even though we constantly give out oil and constantly anoint with oil, that oil is only a symbol of the true anointing. And the true anointing is the Holy Ghost. And it's the same thing about the blood of pigeons and turtle doves, the blood of bulls and heifers, the blood of lambs and goats. They were only substitutionary, prefiguring the day when Jesus would come. My God, and he came to be our true Passover lamb. And when he comes on the scene, he begins to heal the sick, open the eyes of the blind, unstop deaf ears, feed the hungry, walk on the bosom of the briny deep. But when he gets through doing all of that, he says, that's not really what it's all about. The day is coming when they're going to lift me up on the cross. And I, if I be lifted up from this earth, that's when I'm going to draw all men unto me. He waits until the end of his three years of ministry. And he told his disciples, well, the time is coming. And I tell you, I've been wanting 
to take this last Passover with you. But I'll tell you what to do. Go down where two ways meet. There you're going to find a man bearing a pitcher of water. Ask him where is the guest chamber. And he's going to show you a large upper room. And that's where I'm going to have the Passover. And he sits down with these men of Israel and began to break bread and began to drink the wine. He even washed their feet. But when he picks up the cup, he says, in other words, I know that you've been going back in your mind, reminiscing to the night of the Passover. But I want to give this cup of wine a new and a more valid and a more comprehensive meaning. When you pick it up, don't think about the deaf angel passing over Israel. But think about me because this is the New Testament in my blood. He took the bread, began to break it, and said, this is my body, and it's broken for you. You know, in the Hebrews, Passover, they had some bitter herbs, but Jesus didn't introduce the bitter herbs. In other words, he said, I am going to the cross. I'm going to take the bitterness out of it. And you don't have to worry about the bitter herbs. All you do, eat my body, drink my blood. Because one day, he said, this is the last time that I'm going to take this with you. But I want you to know I'm not going to drink it anymore until I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. I know that some of you run out and don't even take communion. You don't even know what it's all about. But if you don't take it now, you won't understand what's going on. Because Jesus said, when I get back to the Father, when my church is called up to meet me in the air, when it's all over down here, we're going to sit down at the table with Jesus. you to know today if you've got a case of the Cain Heppets you tried everything but drugs yet have power over you you've been trying but you can't kick that cocaine habit you've been trying but you can't kick that liquor habit you've been trying but you can't you've even made yourself contented to think your homosexual lifestyle is all right. I want to tell you, man can't clean you up. Man 
can't purge you on the inside. Man can't wash you on the outside. But that power, power in the blood. I'm going to my seat with the hymnologist. The question one day, what can wash away my sin? And I heard the chorus said nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is that flow that wakes me white as snow.
your spirit. Jesus in the morning radio. And you're with Barbara. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Angels in the room. And uh, before that, Bishop G.E. Patterson talking about the blood of Jesus. Hallelujah. And uh, I love this man. Well, I loved him because he passed away. But uh, I thank God for Bishop Patterson. Every Sunday before I used to go to church, I used to hear him on TV. And I would go on in church with him. Oh, yeah, he would bring a word. And then when I get to church, I would be ready. Y'all can go on and praise if y'all want to. I got mine in. <laughs> and so I was just blessed, blessed by him. And I'll never I'll forget him. I didn't know much about his wife, but I knew him and uh, the work that he, he did. And the scripture even says there's no, no man after the spirit. I mean, after the flesh, we want to know him after the spirit. Hallelujah. 
So we're grateful unto him. Listen, the studio is open. We have about 20 minutes. And uh, the studio is open. If there's anyone has something uh, they would like to say, maybe on something that was played on the show today, or um, it may be something else, please feel free to press that number one and come in this morning. Yeah, and share with us. We're so thankful. Thankful for yesterday. Uh, all of the ones that called in with their dates, where they met the Lord. That was a good thing right there. I'm playing that back for myself this morning when I come back. I'm um, doing some stuff, and I thought I was doing just good, not having to go nowhere, you know, just send it through Walmart. I got a young lady down at Bethune-Cookman College in Daytona Beach, and uh, I'm trying to uh, help her out. She said... uh, they call me Miss Mac because that's what they know me as. But since I got divorced in 2016, I got my name back, Pittman, my mate name. So she's, she's like, Miss Mac, uh, yeah, I could use some food. I said, okay, what would you like? I'll send you a care package. So I was going to send the food through Walmart, but they got the uh, address mixed up. And so they just brought, they did it from my store where I live and just brought it to my door. So at first I was thinking, well, maybe I could drive down there and drop it off. But uh, I'm kind of busy, you know, until the weekend. And uh, I know, you know, when you need food, you want it to come on. So today I got to carry all that back to Walmart. They did return on it. Just drop it off and reorder the food, and then they'll send it on to her. So she should have it even later today or first thing tomorrow. But uh, pray for the hospitality ministry of Jesus in the morning. Pray for that for me. And uh, pray for the prison ministry, too. And uh, because I haven't been going as often as I used to. And um, God is faithful. God is faithful. He knows what's best. And uh, in that way, they got to set up. I'm kidding. You can come out with anything. And I did it for almost a year, uh, if not a year, going, physically going. But God kept me safe. And so I'm grateful unto him. And uh, when it was mentioned to me the other day about going back, I have to pray and see what God says about it. Because it's different for me now. You know, I've been through some respiratory stuff and breathing now. I can't just walk in anywhere anymore. He said, watch as well as pray. Yeah. And we want to be looking and not forgetful. Yeah. On things that may harm us. We know that he's with us. Now, if he send me, I don't have no choice but to go because I'm going in Jesus' name. You hear me? I am going in Jesus, and he already had it set up, mm-hmm. and it's already all right in Jesus' name. All right. So no one else have anything they would like to say, and as they say in church, all hearts and minds are clear. Let's pray. Hallelujah. Father God, in the name of Jesus, we thank you for this day. Thank you for all that has been said and done. Father, we thank you that your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And, Father, we thank you that we come to you for understanding, wisdom, and knowledge of your word, just the way you want us to apply it to our everyday life. We're leaning and depending on you, for we know no other. We need you to lead and guide us in the right path, Father, today for your name's sake. So we are asking for these things. We're asking that you would remind us of what your word says concerning us. Remind us that if we'll keep our mind on you, it's you that will keep us in perfect peace. 
This morning, Father, I bring every caller and every listener before you. And I ask this morning in the name of Jesus, that God, you would bless these, your people. You made them for your pleasure. You know all about them. And Father, bless their families near and far. Keep them safe from all hurt, harm, or danger. Father, you know the very intent of their hearts today. You know what they stand in the need of. And Father, I ask that you would move quickly on their behalf, January 26, 2023, in the name of Jesus. Or today, God, during our time, in our time, and oh God, move this morning in a mighty way. Move this day and this night for these, your people. Father, we bring the sick before you here, ask that you would touch and heal this morning. We know that you heal all manner of sickness and disease. Heal us all, O oh God, physically, mentally, spiritually, today, anything emotionally that shouldn't be. Father, we ask that you would cut it off, that you would rebuke it for our sake this day. In the name of Jesus, thank you, Lord. Thank you. We bring those that are incarcerated before you, Father. You know them. You know about them. You know what took place. And, Lord, those that are there that are innocent, like your son Jesus, he went from courtroom to courtroom, did nothing wrong. And, Lord, we ask that you would release the innocent today, open their eyes, show them you, God, and why they are there. Hallelujah. Move by your spirit through the prison system, through the jail system, in the name of Jesus. We thank you this morning. We thank you, Lord. And, Father, we ask that you would bless those that are in every branch of the military and our administration of our military today. Lord, move by your spirit for these men and women. Bless their families, God, especially their children. Keep them all safe, oh God, from hurt, harm, or danger. You know what they stand in the need of today as well. And Lord, many are far, far away from home. Strengthen them, oh God, in the name of Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Bless our brothers and sisters overseas. Lord, bless Israel and prosper Jerusalem this morning. And, Father, we ask that, God, you would continue to bless America and the leadership. Have your way here today, O oh God. Move by your spirit uh, for all of us in the name of Jesus. Bless that city, God, where the man asked me to pray yesterday. And uh, we ask that you would move for that country. And, Lord, let your anointing flow. And let your people have a heart of flesh to receive from you, that they can begin to seek you on their own. Hallelujah. I'll thank you this morning. Father, do it for your glory, and that they come out with testimonies unto you. In the name of Jesus, we thank you. We give you glory, honor, and praise. Father, Father again, bless Sister Irene. You know what she's standing in need of this morning. Lord, you know what's really wrong. Fix it today. In the precious name of Jesus, we thank you, Lord. We thank you. Hallelujah. May the Lord watch between me and thee while we're absent one from another. In the name of Jesus, go today in love and peace. Share the good news of Jesus and give someone something of quality. God loves the cheerful giver. Have a blessed day. I seek the blessings of Almighty God upon you, January 26th. 2023, again in Jesus' name. Hallelujah. And we thank him and we pray he bring us back tomorrow morning, 7 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Get your testimony. Invite a friend to testify. Yeah. And uh, tell your pastor, tell some preacher, hey, come go with me over here. Yeah. 
And if you know somebody who want to come and bring the word, they're going to bring the truth, just let me know. Send me an email. Give me a call. Get me up on Facebook. Yeah. And I would be more than happy uh, to bring them forth. It may be you. You, you. you may be a minister and you have a word. And, and you feel like Jesus is God is leading you right here to Jesus in the morning. Come on. Come on. Yeah, I don't have no problem with it. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. But you got to feel led. That's all I know. Yeah. So that he can use it. So listen, uh, have a blessed day. Have a blessed day. Look for the blessings of the Lord today in Jesus' name. So at this time, I'm going to say bye-bye. And uh, we're going to our last song of the morning. And after this song, uh, I won't be coming back today. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Uh, we're grateful unto your Father. All right, let's go right here.
With the Lucky Land Plus, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.